Good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor, teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. You might have some questions about um, how redemption works and all that. Um, we'd love to help you navigate that. Myself and some of the other elders and leaders will be out by the Connect desk. We can help you uh, walk through any of that. I do want to let you know, though, if you're new, this morning's a little bit different. Um, if you've been coming for a while, you recognize we just did one song up front. Um, and then we're going uh, now into the preaching of the word. And normally, for those of you who are wondering why some were standing up, we would stay standing up for the reading of God's word. We're not doing that. Um, and we'll walk through uh, why. Um, if uh, you're not aware, we feel like the best way to go through the, the Bible and understand the Bible is honestly just to go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And so that's what we've been doing from the beginning of the year in the book of Ephesians. And about two weeks ago, I uh, shot a text to the elders and just said, hey, um, I think it would be good for us to take a, a pause on the book of Ephesians and talk about all the political rhetoric and the atmosphere that's going on in the political world around immigration. And so the more we talked about it, can you turn this down for a little bit? Um, the more we had talked about it, um, it, the more it felt right. And so we're going to take a break from the book of Ephesians this morning. So if you're new, it is different. Um, I'm, I tend to, to be a guy who is able to kind of work through and mentally mind map what we're going to talk about, but there's one or two Sundays where I've got to stay close to my notes, lest we go an hour and a half, and today is one of those Sundays. Um, so I want us to walk through some stuff, and my hope and my goal would be a few things. One, you would understand, like, my job is, is honestly pretty easy when it comes to preaching, meaning I feel like every week I get up here, I, all I have to do is remind you. I'm going to go, hey, remember, you're a believer, the Bible says this, dummy, and you're going, oh, yeah. And what's great about it is not only do I get to plagiarize from the Bible every week and steal all of its material, but I get to yell at you in doing so, and you're like, this is amazing. I'm like, I'll do this forever. You want me to yell at you the Bible? Let's get it, okay? And so it, it's, it's, it's just every week it feels like the same thing. I'm just trying to remind you, remind you, remind you of what the Scripture says. And that, I need you to understand, is no different today. I want to just, as crazy as it sounds to, talk, to say we're going to talk about politics and policy and immigration and citizenship, I need you to really understand everything I'm going to put in front of you are things that Scripture clearly speaks to and things you already know, but I hope that you would see them in a way that sparks a little uh, stole, uh, um, uh, stir in your soul. Sorry, got caught up there. Um, and I hope that, uh, honestly, from here we can do something with it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk us through... Um, a systematic theology of citizenship, okay? And when I say citizenship, the way that the Bible defines citizenship, and then from there, um, I want to talk about what it means to be a citizen in America, and then from there, I want to talk about immigration, and then lastly, I have some closing thoughts, just um, things that we've seen as elders in our congregation that I think are worth noting, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Let's start in Philippians chapter 1, and as you turn there, I want to read a, a text um, a quote from a guy named Jim Skillen as to why we're talking about politics. This is what it says. If you have a Christ who is indifferent to the arts, vocation, justice, law, politics, etc., then you have a very little Christ who rules a very little kingdom. It's worth taking the time to talk about what we're talking about today because the reality is so many of us have grown up in church thinking that Jesus has just saved your soul. And if you've been at redemption long enough, you know that we hold to a big gospel. And if Jesus only rules your soul and he's not involved or can't speak into the arts and politics and policy, if he can't do that, then Jesus has a very little kingdom. But we believe all of life is all for Jesus and everything we do, your vocation, the way you raise your kids, Jesus has a voice. He has an opinion on the matter. And so it is worth talking about citizenship, immigration. It is worth talking about how we need to engage with policy. But I need you to understand we're not going to do it with the premise that the Republican and the Democratic parties have set. We're not letting them frame the conversation. Philippians chapter 1 Verse 27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, what, so that whenever I come, I'm sorry, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. As you look at verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1, I want you to notice something. I think it's up there, in the, it's underlined there. The, the words, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, in Greek is only three words, because the words of their worthy or manner of worthiness is the word citizen. Let your citizenship be worthy of a manner of of, the, uh, of the, the philosophy, the ideas, the policies, whatever you want to call it, to be a citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, 
we know this is true, actually, because if you have an NLT translation, which is a New Living Translation, they're more of a thought translation. And I don't particularly love that the ESV translated it without using the word citizenship. You can see in the New Living Translation, listen to what it says. It says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, uh, or worthy of the good news about Christ, and whether I come, and so on, he goes on to say. This same word that the NLT chose to translate as citizenship, and the ESV did not, but talking about a worthy, a manner worthy of this life, or or worthy of the gospel, is actually used again in chapter 3, verse 20 in Philippians. This is what it says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's kind of launch from there, right? From the jump, let's just make a a clear declaration. From Mark 1.15, when Jesus says he comes on the scene, and that we need to behold for the kingdom of God is at hand, In that moment, there's a declaration of this kingdom. And it's the kingdom that Jesus continues to melee us with throughout the whole God, throughout all the gospels. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23, it's just full of parables of the kingdom. And what we're told here is that kingdom has a people in it. That kingdom has citizens. And you are them. This is where it's important that you understand that if you're not a believer in here today or you're questioning Christianity, I really am glad you're here. But everything we've got to talk about is going to come from a worldview perspective of Christianity. And what we just read is the idea that we are citizens to a kingdom. That kingdom, we are told, both when Jesus tells Pilate, we're told, oh, like the, the idea is clear that Jesus does not fight for his own way, and that this kingdom is not of this earth. As a matter of fact, the language of people and citizenship is also picked up in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter, the systematic view to understand citizenship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. We're going to read more than that, but let's just start in verses uh, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at the beginning of that. Look, look at the beginning, the, the ways. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are a people a certain people as a believer in Jesus Christ that belongs to a certain kingdom that Jesus told us is not of this world, which means the next words out of Peter's mouth can only but make sense. He says this, thus says the Lord of, or I'm sorry, uh, behold, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at the beginning of 11, but I urge you as soldiers and exiles. Let's put it together real quick. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. This kingdom is not of this earth. Therefore, being where I am right now in America, though I am a citizen with an earthly body, emotions, mental uh, uh, capabilities, all that is true of me, but my real citizenship lies in the kingdom of God. And I am a soldier, an exile here on earth. Do you understand? This is important. This is, this is going to launch us because this is, this is key for us to understand this whole idea of citizenship. Now, the term exile is not new to Christianity. Peter knows exactly where he's pulling this from because the people of God for a period of time were acting a fool. And God said, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing it. Okay, fine. I, I told you to stop. And so what he does is he has Babylon take the people of God, essentially kidnap them. And in that moment, we have this whole period in the Old Testament where the people of God are soldiers. They are exiles. They are immigrants in another country. They've been kidnapped by this country, and God has some words for them. He calls them exiles. And this is exactly what God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, a section of verses that we've actually preached on. I've preached on every year since planting three years ago. We've taken a Sunday to go over it. But listen to verses 4 and 7 if you've forgotten. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find 
your welfare. Now, of course, we've taken verse 11 of Jeremiah 29, said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for you to prosper. We've taken out of the context that God is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to keep you kidnapped for 70 years with Babylon. Ain't nobody putting that on a coffee mug. And so here we have this idea of, of, of we, we are sent in, the people of God are sent into exile, and being sent into exile, God is saying, get comfortable. But more than just get comfortable and build houses and plant gardens and, and give your, your kids away in marriage and grow there, hear me, you ready? Seek the welfare of that city. Care about it. So let's take that chunk of scripture. If that's systematic theology, which is different than biblical theology or narrative theology, which we usually do, this is taking this idea of the ethos of citizenship, and let's put this together. If we are citizens of the kingdom of God, which is not of this earth, then we have to figure out how to do something. And, and what we have to, need to figure out how to do is how are we, and what does it look like to be citizens of the kingdom of God or be Christians in America? How do we be Christians in America, and I know this sounds crazy, but it literally took me two weeks to come up with that one sentence. It sounds obvious, but my hope would be that you would hear that statement and you would, try, you would understand that I'm trying to tease out the idea that there is a difference for the Christian to understand contextually where you are language and being language. Okay, so let me, let me, let's walk through this. There's a few steps in this, so track with me. Put your thinking caps on. Let's, let's do this. Here, here's the first idea you need to understand. The reason I'm trying to say that we are Christians in being language in America is because in America is currently where we are, but here's the reality. One day, your Americanness will change. One day, you will not be American. And maybe in this lifetime or the next. And so where you are, cannot define. It's not at the core of how you make your decisions. Yes, it shapes how you operate, but who you are as a Christian demands all of it. So for example, I have a buddy um, who moved to New Zealand. He's he's been a pastor there for about a year now, moved there a couple years ago. And as he's pastoring, he's changing over his citizenship. And so here's the reality. Yes, he was American, but now he's becoming New Zealand. I don't know how to say that. Okay. And so here he is, he's in New Zealand and he's becoming a citizen of New Zealand. But that does not change how he raises his kids. That does not change how he engages his vocation. That does not change who he is. And a Christian always has to process who we are as a believer, where we are. Because who we are is a citizen of the kingdom. Where we are will always change. And the ideas are going to always change. Now here's why this is important again. Because the being language is completely found, according to Colossians 3.3, 3, hidden in Christ. That your life is hidden in Christ. And so if your life is hidden in Christ, every decision you make, all the paths you choose to walk out, the way you do school, the work, it's all found in what Jesus tells you to do. So you have this crazy dissonance every single day in the way that America, your context, where you are is telling you how to live, and Jesus, who you are, is telling you how to live. This, this is the problem. And so there's this citizenship that we continue to wrestle with, which, let's stop real quick, side note. And we're going to come back to politics, but this is where political policy becomes problematic within the partisan party. That was a lot of peace. Wow. This is, this is where it becomes a big issue. Because ultimately what happens is, as you begin to take on Republican policy, I can't help but notice you start to identify more and more as a Republican. And you start to take on where you are language as being language. And it's true for the Democratic Party as well. You start to take on where you are language instead of being language. And so when you fight for a policy, you're going to die on that hill. Check this out. Listen. Believers in Jesus Christ, there is one hill to die on. One hill. And I, this is not Republican. This is not Democrat. The only thing, the crux of who you are that's calling you, that's swaying you, moving the very being that is at your soul is the glory of God for the flourishing of the gospel and the discipleship of all nations. That is the one thing that your citizenship demands of you. And if you are dying on any other hills, hear me, you don't understand real worldview within Christianity. And this is why the insanity of our culture can go, well, I'm Catholic, but I'm just not practicing. I'm Jewish, I'm, just not, I'm Christian, I'm just not practicing. And I mean this in as gentle as I can possibly say it, you're ignorant to your religion. 
you're truly ignorant to your religion. That religion demands all of you. It demands everything. It demands being language. It can never be a part of who you are. Where you are can always be a part of who you are, but it is not who you are. Believers in Jesus Christ, who you are is hidden in Christ. That is the most important thing. Okay, let's go to the third step. If that's true, every political policy, every decision that we need to make needs to come from a place of being, of who we are. Here's what being or who we are tells us according to the passages we just read. We who we are should care about where we are. We should want the thriving of where we are. This is why anti-American rhetoric is foolish. It's, it's not Christian. To be against America is not to desire the flourishing of America. We want the thriving of America. Who I am, based on even Jeremiah 29, tells me I should care about and want the flourishing of where I am. But then this is the last, last step, and this is the trick. I don't define that flourishing or thriving based on where I am. I define that, that flourishing or thriving based on who I am. So in the last year, who knows how many times America has been compared to Nazi Germany, right? But here's, here's the reality, right? Here, here's the truth. Hitler and, and, and the Nazi Germans had an idea of what flourishing was. And a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he looked into the, the souls of what was going on with all the mass genocide of the Jews, and he saw and he said, listen, I want the thriving of Germany. I care about Germany. So much so he's in America and chooses to go back because he wants the thriving of Germany. But he doesn't want the thriving of Germany based on what Germany wants. He wants the thriving of Germany based on what the kingdom of God would say. He wants the thriving of Germany based on who he is, not where he is. And so here we come as Christians, melding our political parties with our Christianity, and we have man-made mutts of ideas. We have these man-made ideas that are mashed together. We call them and paint them over Christian, but it doesn't look like it, and we've bought into the lie. Now, I need to say this because it's not lost on me that um, we're about three days away from the 4th of July. uh, And I don't expect anyone, like on Wednesday, when the fireworks are going off, you're sitting there with your neighbor. And they're going, man, I'm just, I'm glad to be a citizen of America. And you go, I'm not a citizen of America. I'm not saying that, okay? This is is really important for you to understand, okay? Um, (laughs) So... I love America. I love the United States of America. I do. I, and I've shared this with you. When the Olympics are on, there's, there's very few times in the Myers household when the TV's not shut off, but it is on NBC for three weeks. And we're, every time America's on, I don't care if it's 2 a.m., the kids ain't going to school, we're watching pole vaulting, okay? And so, 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 so I'm all about it. As a matter of fact, I, I think soccer's already lame, so I wouldn't watch the World Cup. But if America was in the World Cup, I would care a little bit more, um, but now I just really don't care at all. Um, I love America. Jim served as an el- Jim's an elder. He served in the military. My adopted brother is in the military. John's brother is in the military. We, we, Vince's dad was in the military. Hear me. We love America. Here's what you need to understand. Yes, you are a citizen of America. Like in accordance to dealing with your body, where you are. Yes, you are a citizen of, citizen of America right now. Yes, right now, God has called you here to be here. You are here right now. Yes and amen. And this is where me and my Mennonite uh, brethren um, who are, don't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and, and uh, um, they won't stand for the national anthem. This is where I, just, I don't feel like the, the gospel of Jesus Christ pushes us towards. I think we should care for the flourishing of our country because of who we are. And we should desire it. And I'm a pretty loyal dude. So if I was born in El Salvador, believe me, I'm rooting for El Salvador in the Olympics. Right? Like this is, this is where God has put me. And so, yes, I care. But these, these need to be understood that ultimately we have to define the political arena based on who we are, not where we are. Which leads, of course, to the question, well, then how, am, honestly, how on earth am I supposed to operate as a Christian making decisions based on who I am in America, where I am? How are we supposed to do this? And so this is where both Republicans and Democrats start to get upset. Um, I'm going to do my best to stay close to my notes so we don't go that full hour and a half that I promised. But um, 
I, I have what I got three things that I want to um, uh, unleash on us. And hopefully um, with this much systematic approach we can take biblically, um, I hope these things make sense and, and you understand. And, and here's the first thing we need to understand based on who we are. Here's who we are. Here's what the Bible tells us for the flourishing of our city. Here's what we need to understand. Boundaries, borders, they were all God's idea. National sovereignty is God's plan. And to say otherwise is to spit in his face. God has designed America to go from Washington, to go down into California, and to go no further into the coast, but eventually it enters into another country. That's God's design. Breathe, liberals, breathe. Okay? This was God's plan. God desired this. Let me prove it to you. In uh, Acts 17, 26, this is uh, what Paul says to those there on Mars Hill. He says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So to put it simply, God has put every single individual on this earth where they are. He's decided where they are. And listen, the, the language there, the boundaries of their dwelling. That, the word boundaries is um, where we get a, hori- a word from horizon from, horizo. It's the idea that you and I can stand, we're arguing about who gets what land. We can look to the horizon and say, see where the mountain, go- mountain there, the sun goes down. I'll take all the land from this side. You take all the land on the other side. Uh, there's so much language and boundaries in scripture that God has set them. It's impossible to get around. This is God's idea. Most of Joshua is written from the perspective that Joshua is by God sovereign plan splitting up this whole land to the 12 tribes. Matter of fact, in Joshua 15, it uses the word boundary almost two dozen times. There are laws within the Levitical law that say even individual personal boundary markers that you have of your land next door neighbors that if you move them, you're sinning. There's a crazy story in Numbers 20 where Moses is leading the people. They get to this plant, this land of idiom. And as they get to the land, it would be much better for them to cross over into the land. I have to do this because this is annoying. I didn't notice this in first service, but every week we have the Christ candle lit and I'm not going to talk about immigration without Jesus symbolically being here. So let's go ahead and light this. (laughs) Apparently first service, he wasn't here. So, okay. So Moses is taking the people of God, and as he takes the people of God, um, he gets this land of idiom, and he wants to cross. It would save lots of time for him to, 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 uh, to be able to go through. He goes to the king, and he says, hey, can we go through? And the king of idiom says, no. Moses, okay. So he kind of asks for this like temporary visa and says, we'll pass through real quick. We won't use the water. We won't uh, use any of your food. We won't use the land. We'll go right through. No, you can't. Now, in that moment, Moses respects the king of idiom, And he goes around. He goes around the land. He understands that God has given this unjust, ungodly king those boundaries. And he adds literally days to their journey. God has sovereignly appointed boundaries. This is what being who I am, making decisions. I make those decisions based on one of those decisions based on that. That God has designed the borders to be where they are. But not only that. He also desires and designs in his sovereign will who will rule between those boundaries. So we were just in 1 Peter. Continue to look at your Bibles in 1 Peter. Look at the next verse after we were just told we weren't a people, now we're exiles and all that. Look at verse 13. Be subject, it's a big word, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. You ready? Honor the emperor. Peter just told us not only has God sovereignly chosen for there to be boundaries in America where it is, in Mexico where it is, in Canada where it is, but he has also sovereignly chosen rulers to be in those places. And I don't even have to quote Romans 13 in a southern accent to prove it to you. That, that it's, it's there. It's there in scripture that, that God has chosen this to be so. Now to get the Republicans upset. It is also equally true that there are moments when believers in Jesus Christ making decisions from being language are to push back against those rulers 
are to push back against those laws. There are moments, many actually, in the Bible where this is to take place. And I I don't think it's by accident that the same man who penned these words to be subject to these rulers and authorities was also caught in Acts 4 by the Sanhedrin, who is a ruler and authority under the the, the banner of Rome. They're told, uh, Peter and John are told, not to preach the gospel. And as they're told not to preach the gospel, uh, Peter and John then go stand before the Sanhedrin, and this is what they say in Acts 4, verses 18 and 19. So they, the Sanhedrin, who's over them, called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. Now, let's not, the, the guys on the extreme side were going, well, yeah, if the government said I couldn't preach the gospel, of course I would do it anyway. So no, 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 don't miss. There's something in this text I need you to hear. Peter made a declaration by the spirit of God. Listen to this. Listen to the declaration. He says, you have a view in the sight, uh, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, you have a view rather in juxtaposition to your view than to God. So you have an idea, you have this philosophy, and God has this other plan that he's telling me to do. And so whether I'm to listen to you, you're going to have to figure out, but I'm going to listen to God. Now this does not mean those rulers and authorities aren't meant to be there by God. That doesn't mean that he's not sovereignly over the situation. That they, like us, have chosen to rebel. This is similar, like the question is always like, so God placed Hitler in power? Yes. Yes, he absolutely placed Hitler in power. But Hitler rebelled against the created order in which he was designed. He pushed against the will of God. This is called sin. All of us do it every single day. These rulers are doing it on national levels. God has placed these rulers and authorities, and there are moments when they veer off, and we as Christians have to press. Sky Jahani, I think, says it really well um, in some of this. Um, and I want to read this quote to you, um, but before I do, I need you to understand this is, from this point, is the crux of the whole issue with Christians, right? Because if there are moments when we are to press against the rules, the policies that are in place where we are, the big question is, when do we know to do that? Right? Like, I think a lot of us would go, man, if, if Hitler was in power, yes, absolutely. And he was slaughtering Jews, I would step up. Sure, that, that's the extreme. But like, like let, roll it back. What point did that become too much to the Christian? At what point? And so I, before we answer the question, um, how do we know when, can I just share with you just as much as a, a brief, like, looming fear that echoes in my heart as I see the evangelical world? I fear that getting to when we should push back isn't even an option because, and hear me, I don't even know if all of us are willing to if the time came. I think some of us have been in a place of power for so long, have had platform and prestige for so long, we are not even willing to give up our comfort anymore. And this fear of the evangelical world meshing with this Trumpism is not Christianity. And as it combines, as these world clashes, and white evangelicals, which is predominantly in this room, if statistics are right, white evangelicals are 80% Republican. 80%. Matter of fact, most evangelicals are Republican. And what's crazy is uh, black evangelicals, the AME traditions, are like 90% Democrat. There's something going on in the house of God that we're, we're missing on clear sides. And I just, I can't help but wonder, one of the things that we're missing within white evangelicalism is we've had a place of power for so long that we have forgotten that Jesus did not use governing authorities. He did not use his platform to get his agenda across. But you know how we did it? On the way to the cross, chose not to call down the legions of angels, but through death, the dying of himself. And God vindicated him in resurrection. And I worry, I wonder within evangelicalism, we've had this place for so long, we're not even willing to get to the question. What, what, at what point are we supposed to push back? I can't help but wonder if we, we are even willing to wrestle with, as we continue to hide behind, it's the law to lay some of these things down. I mean, honestly, like, it, it's crazy to me how quick we are with um, evangelicalism. And this is, this just seeing this time and time again that we're going, well, it's the law. Like, it's like, well, it's the law. We just have to unquestionably submit to it. Man, like, just, just do this to, so you can kind of do a uh, temperature check on your heart. Um, 
if it was made legal to let all immigrants in, would you support it the way you support the opposite? I mean, honestly, is, I need you to press, is zero tolerance, is that truly a kingdom value? Is America first a philosophy that symbolizes what Jesus would look like if he was over America? Take care of us and ourselves first. Is, like at the core, are those kingdom values? And we hide behind, it's the law. But check this out, bro. In 1950, it was illegal for there to be uh, um, uh, racial, uh, inter- interracial marriages. In 1950, this is what, like, it's not even 70 years ago. So you're telling me, just to be clear, you're telling me that if there is a black man who's a Christian and a white woman who's a Christian and they want to get married, you in that moment would go, it's the law, I'm sorry, you can't. Now, this is important. The, the reason the example plays, and this came from Vincent Clark, of course, who's interracial marriage. He's got his own agenda on the whole thing. No, the reason, the reason the example plays, the reason the example plays is because they don't have to get married. A black man could go find a black woman. A white man could go fi- find a white woman. That, like, yeah, there it is. They don't have to do this, but it's the law, so we're there. And you know what's sad? Christians did. It's the law. They supported it. We can't do anything about it. No, 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 no. It's not right. It's not right. So Sky Jahani, in this quote, I think nails this looming fear that we as elders see within evangelicalism. The most memorable stories in the Bible involve men and women protesting authority with a higher moral ideal of love and justice. Moses stood before the power structures of Egypt to declare that Hebrew lives matter. Esther intervened on, intervened on behalf of her people when the Persian king labeled Jews illegal. And the state put Jesus to death by crucifixion, a form of execution reserved for those who dared to challenge imperial power. The Bible gives pride of place to those who, like Dorothy Day, Oscar Romero, Rosa Parks, in our world, stood up for a higher moral law in their world. Too many dark moments in history prove that unqualified obedience has no place in a democracy or among Christians. And you ready for this? An imperative lens of power weaponizes sacred scripture and turns our partisan allegiance into false idols. An interpretive lens of power weaponizes sacred scripture and turns our partisan allegiances into false idols. We're not willing to give up our place. These laws keep us comfortable. These laws keep us safe. And the gospel does not promise either to Christians. (laughs) So it becomes problematic, right? Because um, there's not a, this is what we do at this moment. But man, if we would just take a moment and, and test our heart to know that if we bought in too much to where we are rather than who we are, I think a lot of things would come to the surface and we would see a lot of idols. Are you willing to give up your comfort, your safety, your place for the other? Are you willing to do that as a believer in Jesus Christ? Because hear me, that's the way of the kingdom. That is exactly what Jesus did. So of course we have to get to immigration. Um, I'm not Ted Cruz. I'm not Rubio. I'm not Trump. Not Trump. Um, I don't, I, my job in this moment is not to lay out a policy again, as I said in the front, I'm not letting them, I'm just sorry, I'm not, I'm not letting those of you who are pressed so hard and bought into being a Republican, I'm not letting you frame this conversation. To, 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 it's just, it's not going to happen. There's a different way to view immigration than we've allowed these partisan politics to, to put in front of us. There's a different way to do it. So I want to say a couple things to you about this uh, before I share two main things that I think we need to view in, in light of immigration. Number one is... I hope we all know this. No matter your policy, Republican or Democrat, I hope everyone knows this. Someone will suffer. There will be human suffering. As much as there may be human flourishing in another area, there will also be equally detrimental effects of that policy. And I don't care what policy you lay out. You want to know why? Because of sin. Because of sin. Sin is going to be interwoven into everything that the shirt you're wearing was made by somebody who is in a position of oppression. And so, listen, buy the shirts, but understand that sin was involved, and it will always be involved until Jesus returns. So no matter what policy, zero tolerance, open the floodgates, whatever it is, people will suffer. 
There will be suffering. So your man-made idea is not the solution. Cool? There's number one. Getting a little feisty real quick. The second thing that you need to understand, and if you're a uh, like a super Bible studious uh, um, individual who loves getting at the nitty gritty and nuts and bolts of, of what scripture puts in front of us, um, then I hope you can understand this. But I need you to know that applying Levitical law to America doesn't work. You're not a good Bible student if you try to do this. Um, meaning you trying to apply what God is applying to a theocracy in the people of Israel to cast it over to a democracy in America that's, it's, it's just, it's apples and oranges. It doesn't work like that. But to be clear, in a theocracy ruled by God, it is without question that under God's rule, the foreigner, the alien, and the immigrant are commanded to be welcomed. There's no question about this. Matter of fact, Leviticus 19, which is, you'll be surprised, you know, an awesome chapter. I know a lot of Leviticus is pretty boring. Everything surrounding Leviticus 19, let's just agree, is a tough read. But Leviticus 19 is money, and it talks about a lot of these things. Listen to Leviticus 19.34. This is a command to the people of Israel. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here it is. You have a people, a foreigner comes in, welcome them as if it's their country. And in God's theocracy, This is law. There's no question about it. The last thing before I give the two things that I think are important for us to understand in immigration is um, I want to share these two things from a platform that might frustrate you. Meaning um, you, when I share these two things, most definitely, as I heard it in the lobby between services, go, okay, fine, but what are we supposed to do? Okay, well, I'm trying to tell you what you're supposed to do. I really am, but it's not from the framework that our democracy demands. I'm I'm trying to remind you, that's all I can do, remind you of your job in immigration as believers in Jesus Christ. This is your role. This is what God calls you to. And and from my perspective, as I read scripture, there are only two things that I can see. The first one is compassion. If you start from a place of they're illegal, If you start from a place of they need to go back to where they were, and maybe you don't say it in those words. If you do not start from a recognition of sympathy and empathy in your own soul to know that for some of these people, many of which didn't come directly from Mexico, some El Salvador and Honduras, they they came walking through Mexico, which by the way, culturally, the the Mexicans in Mexico hate these people. Because they're ruining their chance, let's their chances to get to America. So they got to walk close from, it's almost a similar walk from Atlanta to Phoenix. That's almost how long the walk is. They got to walk all this way. They're homeless. They're hungry. They have no water. The water they have, they're carrying in jugs. They run out of it many times all throughout the day. They get to a border where they hope to find some form of improvement. And the language is, you're not welcome here. Can we just start As believers, and to me, it's not even optional to start from a platform of Maranatha. It should not be this way. I mean, talking with a guy who's engaging with these people every single day at the border, he said one of the stories, and I know you know these stories, but, but instead of reading it on a screen for a moment, here's somebody verbalize it. So maybe it's sink into your soul. Here's a man who was told he's gonna dr- he can either join the drug cartel in El Salvador, who, by the way, the government is starving its people. They can join the, the drug cartel there or have his throat slit ear to ear. Literally word for word. And then his wife be taken from him. Now, if he does join the drug cartel, he needs to understand that his life at that moment essentially belongs to them. And his wife, and I, I quote, will become a communal tool sexually. And inevitably, his kids are going to follow. You tell me, bro, what would you do? You tell me. You're not walking a thousand miles? You're not hoping for some type of safety on the other side? But you start with, they're illegal. They're illegal? You didn't choose to be born in America? You have a blessing, a platform. God has given you something. You did not will this. They were born in terrible, terrible situations. And you know the tact we used early on with the zero tolerance policy that I don't believe is the way of the kingdom is fear. Maybe if we scare them bad enough, they won't try to cross the border. Listen, homie, you couldn't scare them bad enough. You couldn't. 
One of, one of my friends, born in Africa in a refugee camp, uh, he's got seven brothers and sisters. His mom, they lost their dad. His mom, they're in a refugee camp. And he, I'm, I never forget, he's telling me this story. And he says, my mom was there with all the kids. We're in this little huddle corner um, trying to survive. And these police officers came and said, we're taking your kids from you. And she said, no, you're not. Says, yes, we're taking your kids from you. And so they held up an AK to her head. And they said, if we don't take the, take the we're taking these kids from you or we're gonna shoot you. And I'll never forget what he said his mom said. And he's watching his mom. He says, please, then I won't have to watch my children suffer anymore. Can, can you, for a moment, can you not enter into that brokenness? Can, can you not start with what is best for your country? What is best for your platform? What is best for your comfort? Can you understand these human beings have souls? And God, whether you, listen, God has given you America as a blessing. And if you are a Christian, you are forced to believe by being language that you've been given that blessing to bless those who don't have it. There's no way around this. Start with compassion, with sympathy. Enter in to their brokenness, hear their stories. Any other place that you want to start from, I'm sorry, I cannot rectify as being Christian. If you don't break over children being separated from their families, I'm tell, listen, this breaks the heart of God. This, this is sinful man-made ideas trying to figure it out. And I'm, I'm not even saying, because there's, there's a whole other side of this that things have been put in place to protect other people. I understand that. It doesn't make it right though. For you just to step back and go, Maranatha, Maranatha, return, Jesus. Please, Jesus, come back, please. If this is not your cry, if this is not your starting place, I don't have anything else to tell you. There's, there's no policy I can give you. This has to be our starting place. Which, of course, for some of you go, you go, cool, um, but we need to do something, right? And um, the, there's only one action that I feel like I can give you biblically. Um, I would call you to wake up. Uh, forget what I would. The Bible would call you to wake up and stop worrying about who and how people are coming to you and remember your call to go to them. You've been so tied up on people entering into the nation that God has placed you that you have forgot you've been called to enter into their nation, their brokenness, their throat-slitting environments. Their drug cartel ideas, the world they know, it is the hardest, the darkest, the most broken parts of our world. And hear me, those are our people at the border. Those are our people. They're our problem. We're relying on governmental ideals to solve it. Check it out. In Isaiah 58, the people of God are fasting. And God's superheated. You want to know why? Because they're fasting with the religion, but they're missing something else altogether. We've shared this text. Listen to what he says. God's upset with the people of God as they're fasting. They're performing this religion, and yet they do not loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. And then he goes on to say this. The only kind of religion that is honoring to God, that honors God, is to, and I quote, this is in Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, clothe them. In, in Proverbs 31, verse 8, it says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In James 2, it says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go, be warm and be filled, but does not give them anything in which their physical body needs, what good is it? Have we forgotten that, that those are our people at the border? That Jesus did not move away from the woman at the well, but drew near to her. Did not move away from the Samaritans, but moved towards them. Did not move away from the demoniac, but moved towards him. Did not move to the woman who was caught in adultery, but moved towards her. This is the whole point of the Good Samaritan. You asking, well, are they my brother? Yes. Yes, they are. They're your neighbor. You've been called to go to them. You want to get caught up in partisan politics? It is what it is. I'm telling you, a biblical view of immigration says you go to them. You take care of them. And believe me, let's not hide behind there's, I don't know what to do. No, there's resources. There's ways you can pay for lawyers. 
You can give money to operations. There are churches down there doing tons of work. If you want to be involved, believe me, we have options. But to hide behind, I don't know what to do, and you're trying to protect yourself because you're afraid to lose your platform isn't okay. It's just not okay. Let me read a a really difficult quote. It's from a guy named Jonathan Walton. He wrote this in the New York Times. um, Or no, he wrote this in Time Magazine, actually. Um, He's a pastor, and I think what he says is extremely strong. But, But listen to this, okay? Hyperbolic denunciations of particular enemies in Scripture become a universal license to hate and condemn others. Paul's defense of slavery, patriarchy, and imperial power are used to sanctify an unjust status quo. No wonder so many use the pages of the Bible as filled with the blood of anti-Semitism, racism, sexism, and colonialism. Such a desire for power appears to be the imperative lens of many evangelical Christians today. They employ a highly selective scrabble game of Bible verses to provide spiritual cover for mean-spirited policies. Appeals to Scripture become a way of baptizing our bigotries and consecrating our callousness. Like Aaron at the foot of Mount Sinai... Fear causes us to create gods in our own image, a veritable uh, golden calf uh, comprised of the things which we most cherish. Man, you may feel like it's rough, but I feel like I want to go, yes. We've bought into the way they want us to frame the conversation for too long. We've forgotten our original call. Go to them. Be the people of Jesus. Now, this is where I would pray. And it may feel anticlimactic, but I have to close with some random thoughts that have um, more to do with our rhetoric publicly. Um, And it's things that as elders we've seen within our own church, within our own congregation, we feel like is worth addressing. Um, Based on those two things, that's all I think I feel like we can give you is to have compassion and go to them. All other political policies, we do not rely on the man-made ideas of this world. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And because of that, there's these few things that um, we disagree on as Christians, even in this very room. And because of that, um, there's some things that we have to kind of lay down as ground rules just for us to begin to understand. Because our congregation grows more and more eclectic every week. And if that's true, then there's going to be people you're in the room with that you vehemently disagree with. Which, can I just say, is good for your soul. Okay? So there's two things I need you to to understand. Well, there's a couple things, but the first two I want to start with. Um... The first thing is wanting the president to fail isn't okay. It's not okay. I mean, just philosophically, you're hoping the pilot dies while flying the plane, which is never a good idea. But like the reality is you hoping that President Trump would fail, man, and and even building on that, you saying whoever supports Trump is a racist isn't okay. There are millions of Christians And I would even put myself in the category that as I wrestle with being language, I'm struggling with the fact that 1 Peter tells me to be subject and honor Donald Trump. To be subject and to honor him. And yet disagree with so much of what he is doing. So much. And I mean on deep, serious issues. Deep things that I just, I can't understand. Can't get my mind around. Feel like they lack compassion. And yes, at times do feel racist. To even the small, like, like tweeting out foreign policy. Like, what are you doing, bro? You're the president of the United States. And yet, First Peter tells me to be subject and to honor. And for you to say, if you follow or support Donald Trump, you're a racist. Listen, I don't know what to tell you. My biblical worldview tells me to be subject and honor him. I'm not a racist. I disagree with so much of what he says and does. But I don't think it's right for anyone to say, because they support Donald Trump, they're a racist. We need to stop that. The second thing is, uh, this might be obvious, but the internet has changed everything. FYI. Um, Alexander Jacobson says, the internet is a friend of information and an enemy of thought. The idea would be that we uh, tend to quickly look through our feeds, see what is there, and then we, like everyone else, we skyrocket. And then it's down. And then the next issue, we skyrocket. So where, when I was a kid, I started to like pogs by the time they weren't cool anymore. It was like two years, right? It's like this long progressive of like pogs became cool and then not became cool. It took a long time. Well, now a fidget spinner was literally cool on Sunday. And by Monday, you were getting made fun of if you had one. 
It's just so up and down. We're so quick. We have all these ideas. And so let me just, by way of encouragement, let me just say this. Number one, uh, Proverbs 18 says, he who is a fool who does not listen to both sides and take action. Okay, slow down. Don't respond like everyone else is responding and listen to both sides. I was telling Miles this the other day. I watched an awesome 10-minute video, uh, and it was this man interviewing this other guy who'd been on the border for about five years. And he was, I mean, such great information and insight to what was really going on. Because if I'm going to be honest, I've had crazy dissonance about who to believe, what channels to listen to. It's just been hard for me uh, to, to know what to say and who to believe and all that stuff. And watching this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. You know the problem is? I wanted to share it, but it was titled, What Every Liberal Needs to Hear. What am I supposed to do with that? I can't share that. Like that's, that was not helpful at all. Like for you to say like, can we just remove it? It had nothing to do with what liberals needed to hear. This is what every human needs to hear, bro. Like, what are you talking about? But there's an agenda behind it, right? And so if I can listen, if I can find avenues to hear what this says, hear what this says, then I can respond appropriately, which leads to uh, another thing. In engaging in conversational media, social media, it seems to me that there's biblical um, mandates over all of life that can apply to this section of our life. Meaning, number one, I would do your best not to respond without relationship. Meaning, 1 Corinthians 13 was going to say, if you're going to go on a rant and you don't know and love this person, it's probably best not to respond. Honestly, that's going to be probably your best bet. So that's the other one. Uh, and then the second thing is, I, it may sound Christian, but I would just say, before you respond, and it may sound like super just pastoral, tell me what to do. Can you just take a moment and just pray and go, should I send this? Recently, a friend of mine has been in the news a lot in a, in a lot of the wrong ways. And I went quick to Facebook to find all these things that had been posted about him. And as I was trying to see and read and enter into these feeds, I just went off. There was something within me. I didn't say anything I regret, but I was just like, oh, really? And you know him. I'm like calling all these things. And it was just a disaster. Like, right? I had my own agenda. I ended up going, deleting as Sedona Macklin. Tell me how to delete every comment I've ever made on Facebook. Like... It was just foolish. I shouldn't have done that. And I should, and, and I just, so I, I'm going to try to lead in that way, man. Pray, be in relationship before you engage in that. And then here's my last uh, imperative that I can give you. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8. Read those Beatitudes. Look at the person of Jesus. Look at how he taught and then act. Look at his way of life, what he says is important in the kingdom of God, and then act. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for who you are. Thank you for your word. You you didn't leave us in the lurch, like to hope and try to figure out what you desire, but your word has given us clear paths and how to navigate this, and Um, I just pray that you would show us, Jesus, uh, your life. Holy Spirit, you would make clear in Scripture how we are to operate. I I pray that every single person in this room would start from a place of compassion and brokenness. And they would move to a place of action, of walking towards those who are immigrants, those who are undocumented, those who are called Um, into one country as you've placed them, but have no choice but to find a way of life somewhere else. I pray that you would move us in that direction and not rely on man-made policy. Jesus, thank you. We love you. We need you so much in these areas. There's so much that was unsaid. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen.